Church, Charlotte. All right, I want to, uh, before we get diving in here, uh, I want to remind all of you that uh, our our leadership team, our goal is to serve you all. And so if you ever want to go back to an in-person Wednesday night, I want you all to know it's the same amount of work for me. <laughs> and I enjoy seeing you. Um, and if that's ever something that is, uh, we're not lobbying for any one particular, uh, shall we say, uh, method. It's just this, this seemed to really, really work. And actually at the moment, um, if I am correct, uh, we have more people uh, participating this way than we ever had in person. Um, because if you count the views, uh, you see there's, um, it has an empowering effect. Now that is not to say um, that we wouldn't be glad to go back to in person. We we are here to serve you. Um, doesn't bother me the, one way or the other. I just want you to know uh, uh, whatever you decide, um, I will serve you however you decide. In the meantime, I love teaching the word of the Lord. Uh, I love uh, making it a part of my life, and I know you feel the same way. I am going to turn off microphones now for the sake of interruptions, and uh, I will get share my screen. And then we will uh, begin uh, with our, our Bible study tonight. So let me make sure we're on the same page here. Um, all right. Our title, our subject is uh, Claiming the Promises of God. Claiming the Promises of God. And I want to, before we get into the meat of this, I want us to pray together. And I want us to uh, prepare our hearts to consider these things and to, to talk about these things. So wherever you are, uh, just uh, find a way to uh, bow your head. Don't do this if you're driving. Just pray with your eyes open if you're driving. But let's pray together and ask that God's word would live within us. Lord Jesus, we are so blessed. We are so blessed to have you as the Lord of our life. Uh, in everything that we do, you make it richer, you make it safer, you fill it with meaning, you fill it with joy. And Lord Jesus, we want to serve you, we want to please you, we want our life, our heart to be uh, in some way uh, a, a testimony of your glory, your power, your grace. Lord, we want revival in our city, we want revival in our homes, we want revival in our ministries, in our small groups. Lord Jesus, we want our Sundays to be places where people know that you were there. They feel you knocking on their heart door. We want our homes to resonate with uh, zeal for the house of the Lord. We want what we put our hand to do to prosper, not simply because of uh, good fortune in our life or things come together. We want it, the blessing to reflect who you are. And we want our choices to manifest your strength and your purpose in our life. So guide us by your power. Let your word live within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Claiming the promises of God. Uh, I almost always will start with a defining question, and it is usually a simple question. And tonight's goes like this. How do we, as believers, claim the promises of God in our life? Um, I want to make one point of distinction. Uh, it is possible for us, if we're not careful, to approach God not in faith, but in superstition. And I want all of you to understand the difference between those, those two things. Um, a lot of people, a lot of so-called Christians are in many ways, uh, they're almost superstitious with their faith. Um, they believe that they, if they could get this particular style of faith or worship or a prayer, uh, then God, they would, as it were, you know, discover the religious abracadabra, and then God would give them what he is withholding from them. And it's kind of like, you know, the old joke about uh, the father who takes his son fishing and he's catching fish and his son isn't. And his son asks him why. And he said, well, you're not holding your mouth right. It's just like an absurd distraction that has nothing to do with fishing, but it's funny in the moment. 
Um, some people serve the Lord that way, as though we have to bribe, beg, or trick God into doing what he has already said he would do. That's not how we're approaching God. We're not claiming promises of God to manipulate God and force him to do something that he would not have done. That's not what we're doing. It's deeper than that. We're not living in superstition. We are living in faith, do you see? And so to understand the nature of God, the character of God, um, you have to build upon the truth that is from Genesis to Revelations, and that is this, that God is a covenant-keeping God. God reveals himself through promise. We choose whether or not we can believe the promise, and if we can, the hand of God begins to work in our life in a manner that is divine. It is beyond easy explanation. God's ways are not our ways. God says he will keep you and he will keep you. And interestingly, he will do it in a way that will surprise and leave you in a type of awe at the greatness of God. Um, he will fulfill his promise. He will keep his covenant. His covenant is not dependent upon us claiming his promises. We are not forcing God's hand. I know I'm taking a moment here, but uh, we want to live in faith, not religious superstition. We are not forcing God's hand and by claiming promises, somehow hijacking blessings that we would not have got otherwise. That is not what we are doing. As we will see, there are deeper reasons to claim the promises of God than just trying to manipulate how many cookies we get out of the cookie jar, do you see? Um, God is a covenant keeper, whether it's the patriarchs, whether it is the judges, whether it is the kings, the prophets, whether it is the disciples, whether it is the New Testament church, God gives promise. The people upon whom the promise has been gifted have to decide whether or not they can believe the promise. And if they can, they begin to live a different kind of life where they claim the word of God as higher, better evidence than everything else in their life. That is why God can say, you're no longer Abram, great father, but Abraham, father of many nations, do you see? You're no longer, but the evidence points to the contrary. And here's the life of faith. I will take God's word over every other source of evidence in my life. I will look my hunger in the teeth or the eyes, and I will say, God said, the righteous will not go hungry. God said, the righteous will not be forsaken. When I choose a life of faith, what I am doing is I am claiming God's promises not because God needs me to claim him in order for him to keep him, but so that my life becomes one of worship, spiritual partnership or covenant, and example to the world who is much more impressed by the evidence of the eyes and the thoughts of the mind than the believer is. The believer can stand upon the walls of the city and pray, open the eyes of my servant. And when the eyes of the servant is open, the servant says, man, there's more with us than there are with them. A moment before, he was in the exact opposite. This is what faith does. And so God gives promise, and then God, in miraculous, unexpected, and testimonial ways, God keeps his word. We play the role of the believer if God said it, I stand with it. I claim what God has promised me, but you haven't got your healing yet. I claim what God has promised me. You haven't had this breakthrough or that example or that. You get the idea. I claim what God has promised me. And here's the interesting thing. Our life of faith is just as much a part of our testimony's power as the moment after it has happened and we're standing in the wealth of what God has done for us. So let me repeat that. The life of faith 
is just as much, if not more of a testimony of God's power than the moment when, to use the example of Abraham, Isaac is born. Because it is faith as a way, faith as a path. So the person who looks at your life and they want to believe God and they decide to stand upon the word of God, they decide to do what we're talking about, claim the promises of God. Claiming is not some type of a forcing God to give. Claiming is the testimony of your faith, sometimes months and years when you have not yet received the promise and yet you see it afar off and you decide he is a covenant keeper. Even if I don't understand, he's a covenant keeper. God uses the testimony of the faithful even when they're not victorious. God uses the testimony of the faithful even when it doesn't seem they get the victory that they may have wished. Remember Hebrews 11, all these died in faith. How can the story end like that? Because remember this life we are living is just the beginning of our story, my brothers and sisters. I wish someone could shout amen, but I wouldn't even hear you if you could. This life is just the beginning. And when this body passes away, my story isn't over. I just step into a different realm of covenant with God. I am with him then face to face. The mystery is removed. Don't be afraid of that which can destroy the body, but worry about that which has authority over your soul, do you see? And so God keeps his word, he gives his promise, and he keeps his word. So um, that might force some of you to ask this question. Well, if God is going to make a promise and God is going to keep a promise, why do we need to believe? What does God get from our faith? Now, that's a big question. <laughs> what does God get from our faith? Um, I have, uh, I spent some time on this, and uh, the first thing I want to say on the subject of what does God get from our faith, or why does God need us to believe if he made a promise he can just keep it. He doesn't need us to believe. Why is faith the other half of the miraculous? Let me say that again. Why is my faith the other half of the miraculous? I know God can, do you see? I know God can. I know in many cases God will. Now, he will not do against his will, but he will act in his will. If you'd like to write that, that down, that's some profound stuff right there. He will act. Uh, why does he need my faith? Well, here's the thing. For, before we talk about what God gets from it, let's talk about the inclusion of all of us in the kingdom of heaven. Faith is the only way people who have been falling and fallen and separated from God can be a part of the kingdom of God. And it was always God's will to have fellowship with you and fellowship with me. It was always God's will for us to have togetherness, unity, us who are many and far brought near, brought close. That was always the will of God. That was the point of the garden. It, in its essence, is a love story. And faith is how God brings us into the kingdom of God. Faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Because Christ is our perfection. Christ is our judgment. Christ is our cleansing, our Passover lamb. So the only way we can be a part of the kingdom of God, and God wants us to be a part so much, is through faith. So it is with the miraculous. Um, if God, what, well, let me get to this question. What does God get from our faith? Um, I've already mentioned that's how we're included. But I want to say this. Imagine a, 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 a baby is um, a newborn is a little bit sick and just cries all night long and just doing the opposite of sleeping like a baby, just just uh, keeping everybody awake and it's just miserable and you see the mother and you see the father and they have dark circles under their eyes and they, they're exhausted and they're, they, they look like they've been beat about the head, neck and shoulders and here they got that baby. And uh, imagine that baby talking to another baby and saying, you know, what does mom and dad get from taking care of us all night long? I kept them up all night long. 
I messed my britches. I sped up. I made a general mess. In fact, I sometimes suspect that's all I'm good for at this stage in my life. I'm just a trouble box. What does mom and dad get from me? Well, it sounds silly, right? Because the baby is not going to understand the love that the mother and the father has. The baby's the baby. Uh, the baby cannot understand. I think that's a good example. When we try to decide why God loved us, I, I just want to say I his ways are above my ways, but he is our heavenly father. He is our creator and he loves us for his own reasons. Faith is not about what God gets from me. Faith is how God brings me into fellowship. That's why I believe God wants to walk with you and live with you and bless you because that's how he gets you into the unity of his kingdom. That is how all you who were afar off are brought, are brought nigh, brought close. This is how the love that was the reason for this whole story is brought to fulfillment through Jesus Christ. So uh, when we ask, what does God get from our faith? Let's say God's ways are above our ways. But what we get from our faith is inclusion in the kingdom of God. And so for us, faith becomes a lived example of worship and trust. I live it. I don't just sing it, shout it. You understand? I live it. Faith is me living worship. I'm, I, I like my worship music, but I live worship when I have faith in God. I demonstrate trust. Even when my flesh doubts, even when people around me don't understand. Um, and so uh, for God, our faith is an act of love. Remember what Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. For um, God, I believe the most profound way to tell God you love him is not the song you sing, although that's great. It's not even the prayer you pray, although that's great. The best way, the most profound way for us to tell God that we love him is to have faith in his promise. Uh, remember Isaac preparing to offer his son, excuse me, Abraham preparing to offer his son Isaac to the Lord. And as they journey to Mount Moriah, uh, Isaac is curious about the nature of this sacrifice. This had not been the first sacrifice he had been on. He knew what to look for. This was not a one-time uh, habit in Abraham's life. Isaac knew what to look for. And he says, Dad, I see we have this. I see we have that. But we do not have a sacrifice, Abraham says to his son. And I'm sure Abraham's soul trembled within him. What father would not feel that way? Uh, he said, the Lord will provide a sacrifice. Not knowing what else to do, but believing that God would provide a sacrifice. He goes through all of the preparation and the Lord stops him at the point of sacrifice. And the Lord says this to him, Genesis 22 and 12, lay down the knife. Don't hurt the lad in any way, the angel said, for I know that God is first in your life. You have not withheld even your beloved son from me. And the story continues and reveals the prophecy that's in the story. The Lord provides a sacrificial um, uh, ram for that moment uh, because it was about Abraham's lived trust. Not just the song he sang, not just the poem he wrote, the lived trust. Whatever you're going through in your life, whatever troubles you have, whatever distrust uh, is waking you in the middle of the night, you can literally carry that into the presence of God and you can lay that down as an act of worship and an act of love to the, Lord, to the Lord and tell him in that moment, God, I'm giving this to you as a way of saying, I trust you. I'm giving this to you as a way of saying, come what may, I have placed myself in your hands. You can live out your trust, live out your faith. Now I know, the angel says, when we demonstrate faith, it's not just positive mental attitude. It's not just um, the song that we learned and we sang. Uh, it is the ultimate shouted, not really shouted, but uh, demonstrated 
sign of love toward God that we can have in our lives. So uh, secondly, I want you to think about Job. Here, Satan accuses God of having a a transactional relationship with Job. What do I mean by transactional? Uh, Satan's point is that Job doesn't really love you, God. He has a business deal with you. And because you take care of him, well, then he serves you. But if you didn't take care of him, there would be no real love there. And so this is, uh, if our history is correct of uh, scripture, um, the first book that was written down, remember before there was texts and scrolls, there was what we call an oral tradition. And that is the story passed from uh, generation to generation. And then somebody said, this story has to be written down. If our history is correct, the very first thing to be written down from the oral tradition of one generation telling another to being placed on text is the story of Job. And it fundamentally deals with this this issue of what is the nature of a relationship between mortal and immortal? What is the nature of real relationship between God, creator, and humanity, creation? Uh, In the Greek tradition, uh, the Greek philosophers, which were perhaps the most influential of the time, um, they believed that God could not have an affectionate uh, covenant relationship with humanity. Uh, humanity was the playthings of God. And what the Greek culture ended up doing is they used the folly of the gods to remove their guilt. So they solved their guilt problem by blaming the gods. Well, this happened because this one did that with that one and this one killed that one. And that's why there's trouble in the world. Um, when you have one supreme being one creator, it cuts through all the confusion of that. And it leaves you with the decision of whether or not you take responsibility for your life, responsibility for your actions. You do not get to lay off your guilt at the feet of a disordered and uh, absurd uh, godhood. You literally have to face the right and the wrong of it. So this question is central to Job. Why would humanity serve deity? Why? Um, If you bribe us, then we serve you. Uh, And it's, of course, natural that Lucifer would think this. This is how Lucifer viewed the world. It's very much transactional. Um, And so when everything's removed from Job, Job has an opportunity to show what love is, not, not what business savvy is, not what negotiating skills are, but he lives out his love just as Abraham demonstrated his love by withholding nothing that mattered uh, more than anything to him. And the the angel said, now I know. So so it is with Job. He loses all the reasons to be a covenant keeper. Will he keep the covenant? And you'll remember the great scripture in chapter 13, where he says to his accusers, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job answers the question of whether or not humanity can have a covenant relationship with God. And once that question is answered, once that issue is settled, now you can tell all the rest of the story because that's fundamentally what it is. God is a covenant keeping God and we, the powerless, keep our end of the covenant by believing and trusting in the one who is powerful. Faith is our contribution to the covenant. God is a covenant keeper. And when and we show our love, our reverence, our worship to him by expecting and believing that he will keep his covenants in spite of seeming evidence to the contrary, in spite of fear and uncertainty, uh, in spite of all those things, we hold fast to the promises of God. And by doing that, we become the covenant partners of God. It's not as though God is struggling to get it done and he needs us to bring it across the finish line. <laughs> That's not our uh, addition. That's not what we're bringing to the covenant. We are bringing this absolute commitment of trust and faith to the one who gave us 
the covenant. So how do we become covenant partners with God first? And we've talked about this uh, uh, many other times, and we'll talk about it many more times. Um, I want to mention it, but I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on it tonight for time's sake. The first thing is salvation experience. We turn away from our sin and we call upon the name of the Lord. We repent of our sins. We seek to stop living a life of the flesh, a life of um, the, the, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, pride of life. And we begin to look heavenward for a different way to live. We call upon the name of the Lord. We repent of our sins. We become adopted into his family through taking on his name in water baptism. That is also a sign of how he removed the sin that separates us. That's how we come into the family. We take his name because he paid our sin debt. Now we're in the family and then we fulfill the purpose of creation by becoming the dwelling place of the Lord. We, what? Know ye not? You are the temple of the Holy Ghost. You fulfill the point of creation by being the dwelling place and this is the uh, inhabiting of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Lord wants you to not just live that. He wants you to experience that. That's why he gives us a sign of uh, a heavenly language of speaking in tongues as a sign of that inhabitation of his spirit in our hearts and we becoming the dwelling place of the spirit. If you have not ever spoke with tongues as the spirit gave you utterance. It's not that you have not been dealt with by God. God has been dealing with you for a long time. It's not that God hasn't corrected you. God has. It is not that you haven't repented. It's that you have not yet received a manifestation and a sign, number of signs in the scripture are important. You've not received a sign of the fact that God is with you. When you do receive that sign, it creates a tremendous confidence in your life because you are not just one who is, um, as it were, uh, striving, but you are one who has been signed. You have been sealed and signed. What is that sign? It is uh, that gift of uh, the Holy Spirit. Um, this is the salvation experience. It is followed this sovereign experience is not one and done. Uh, it is an open door. It's not the end of anything. No point on our journey of salvation is it an end of anything. Repentance isn't an end. Baptism is, isn't an end. Uh, re receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues is not an end. All those are beginnings into the presence of God and into the calling of living a life by faith. Now, having become a part of the family of God, having the same promises that were of the house of Abraham applied to you as a child of Abraham who like Abraham uh, is believing God, your hope is in God and like Abraham is seeking the things of God, the kingdom of God, the city of God. We now in the family live a life of faith. We claim as sons and daughters, not slaves and servants. We claim as sons and daughters the promises of God and live them out. So, all right, I brought you to uh, a handful of things that will begin to immediately change uh, the level of faith in your life if you will apply them. They are simple tools, but all the great truths are simple. It's the living of them that is the difficulty, not the truth, not the truth of them. The truth of them is a simple thing. It's the living of them that is the difficulty. The first thing you need to know is you, you need to know the promises of God. It's very difficult to claim something you don't know. And this is where rightly dividing the scripture, applying the scripture, spending time in the scripture, praying the scripture can make a profound difference in the level of faith in your life. I don't, I, I don't care how difficult your season is. I don't, I don't, it doesn't even matter if you feel like you can't pray right now. Get the word of God out and pray 
the word of God. You cannot claim something you don't know, DC. You claim the promises of God. And in order to do that, you have to know them. How do we get that right? How do we know them? How do we correctly divide the word of the Lord? Well, we understand, first of all, that not all the promises in the Bible are for us. Some were specific to a place, specific to a time, specific to a people, or even to a person. But don't that don't let that uh, discourage you. Why? Because he's a promise-giving God. He's a covenant-keeping God. And there is promise after promise after promise that is rightly given to you, and you need to know them. You need to know the promises of God. So ask yourself the difficulty you're living with. What are the trials and troubles you're living with right now? Do you know the scriptures that speak to those troubles? If you don't, here's an opportunity. Make a change. Get the word. It's easy now with computer search. You can search. Uh, just go to Google and type scriptures and healing, scriptures and fear, scriptures about grace. Scriptures about second chances and all that work is done for you because of computer search. You know those scriptures. Don't just suffer with your circumstance. Get to know those scriptures. Many of them are directly for us. Secondly, we want to personalize God's promises. We want to apply them to our needs. Uh, the longer you've been in the church, the easier it is for you to have faith for someone else. <laughs> and the harder it is for you to have faith for yourself. I don't know why that is, but I, I really believe that's true. Um, I, in my experience, new believers oftentimes have a purity of faith for God doing something in their life that if you've been serving the Lord for a good few years, you you may struggle to have. You, you'll find yourself actually more effective praying for someone else and speaking the promises of God for someone else. That's not bad. That's fine. But remember, personalize the promises. Don't just say he's a way maker. Say he's my way maker. Don't just say he's a healer. Say he is my healer. Personalize it. Let it live within your heart. Deuteronomy 29 and 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. Now, this is an Old Testament scripture that is demonstrating the heart of the people to follow the word that God has given them. Don't let a promise just be a vague worship song. Claim it, personalize it. He's my friend that sticketh closer than a brother. He is my help, a very present help in my time of trouble. Though the enemy come in like a flood, the Lord will raise up a standard against them in my life, in my circumstances. And so, uh, to re, uh, just to, to, to restate ourselves, we've got to know the promises of God. We need to know them. We need to understand that which applies to us. Secondly, we need to personalize the promises of God. You will find that if you personalize the promises of God, worship and praise will be the easiest next step in your life. But if you don't personalize the promises of God, worship and praise will not be as easy a next step for, uh, for you. Number three, we want to know them. We want to personalize them. And now we speak them. We become a living voice that speaks the promises of God. You see, uh, faith is more than simply an emotion we have. It's more than a religious experience you get on Sunday when they sing your song. Uh, faith is a way of facing the trouble. It is a way of speaking to the mountain. Do you see? Be cast into the sea. We don't just feel faith. We don't just know the scripture. We don't just personalize it for ourselves in kind of some type of self-talk. No, we speak it. Um, this is where the blessing of God's promise begins to expand beyond the borders of your life. Um, if you have unsaved family and unsaved friends, they need to hear you claim the promises of God because God's going to keep those promises. And when he does, it might as well be a testimony that he is a covenant keeping God. Not only that, your family, unbelievers though they may be, 
They need to see how you are choosing to live your life. They need to be able to testify. Yeah, that telling you what he prayed right. He he prayed right there. You know, they need to know because you aren't just feeling. You aren't just thinking. You aren't just self-talking. You are speaking the promises of God in your life. Second Corinthians four, verse number thirteen. It is written, "I believed, therefore I have spoken. I believed, therefore I have spoken." Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. You see that association? I love that. You're a believer. Speak it. You believe God can heal you? Say it. You believe God can fight a battle for you? Say it. Speak it. Let your mouth testify of the greatness of God. Speaking the promises of God is fundamental to claiming them, to living them out as testimony to your world. And I want to give you an example of of how we speak the promises of God. Uh, this is a list of of, of things that we could pray and we could apply to our life. Remember, it's not just us feeling it, thinking it, it's us speaking it into the audience of our world. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. In other words, I'm a son of the king. You're a son or a daughter of the king. I speak it. I am loved. Nothing will stop God from loving you. You see, I speak that out. My world needs to hear my testimony. I am protected. I am protected. Wherever you are right now in your own place of Bible study, why don't you say this? Say this right where you are. If you're sitting with other people, say it together. I am blessed. God is my strength. I am blessed. I was made for a purpose. My life is not some random experience. God had intentional, wonderful things planned for me. I am made for a purpose. I live with the power of the Spirit in my life. Sometimes I live below my rights, and I go through things I shouldn't have gone through because I'm not calling upon the Spirit and submitting to the Spirit in my life, but I am, by the promises of God, filled with the power of the Spirit. I am fully and completely known. God knows me better than I know myself. God knows you better than you know yourself. And God knew you and still loved you. I don't love everything about myself. I'm sure you feel the same way. God fully knew me and loved me. That should fill you with a sense of spiritual hope. I'm never alone. I feel alone but I am never alone. He gave me this promise and I'm personalize it. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Say this, I am forgiven. I am redeemed. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. Yes, I made a mess. Yes, I deserved judgment, but my sins have been washed away. I am forgiven. I am redeemed. And finally, I have been given an inheritance of joy. Yes, I have been given an inheritance of joy. I'm not just barely making it suffering, flopping. I have been given an inheritance of joy. Even if I seem to lose in the here and now, because I am God's child, I am with him forever. So to live as Christ, to die is gain. I am given an inheritance of eternal life. And because of that, I can have joy in the promises of God. This is an example of how you speak it. You don't just clap your hands when we sing the song at church, do you see? You don't just, you know, kind of say amen when the preacher gets on that point. You speak it into your life, particularly if you've been catching yourself speaking negative things. Um, don't let the negative voice be the only one that gets spoken. You make sure you fill your life with the promises of God and you exalt him by claiming his promises and looking to see his hand working. And then lastly, number four, we celebrate, we celebrate God's promises. We don't wait until we get everything we want. We celebrate the covenant keeping nature of the most high God in the here and now. Joshua 1 and 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night 
so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and success, successful, Joshua says. What a great scripture. We celebrate the promises of God before we understand them. We celebrate the promises of God before we have some system of uh, explaining what God has done. Even where we're in the phase of our life where I don't know how God's going to fix this mess, I still celebrate the fact that he is my solution. And so these become uh, four things that we do uh, to live out the promises of God in our life, to claim the promises of God in our life. We have to know the promises of God. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, he doesn't say, let me get back to you on that. He quotes from the scripture. He knows the promise. So we should know the promises of God that we are living. Secondly, we personalize the promises of God. Do you see? It's not just for other people. It's not just God bless so-and-so and and sister so. (laughs) God has promised me. I personalize them. Number three, um, I speak those promises. I speak those promises. God's going to do what he has promised to do, but my world won't be influenced if I keep it all locked up inside of me. Do you see? I have the responsibility of spiritual place where God has put me. And I'm not trying to manipulate God into keeping his promise. He's a covenant keeping God. I am adding my part to the kingdom of heaven, which is believing that he will keep the covenant and then letting my life testify of God's power and God's transformation in my life. So I speak the promises of God. I don't just enjoy it at church. I speak the promises of God. Whatever is attacking me, I attack it back. How do I attack it? With the promises of God, just like Jesus dealt with uh, Lucifer in the wilderness. Lucifer wants to misquote this scripture. Jesus will correctly quote this scripture. We respond. We do not let doubt and fear have the last word. And finally, we celebrate. We celebrate the promises of God. Don't wait until you're on easy street to be a worshiper. Be a worshiper now. Don't celebrate after the answer has come uh, for you to have in some manner a um, uh, a time of worship and praise. Believe that God is going to intervene in the here and now and celebrate in the here and now according to the promises of God. Sometimes I can praise him for what he has done. He's always done enough, so I'm always can praise him for that. But I'm talking about in a specific circumstance. When I can't praise him for what he's done, I praise him for what he's promised. And if I can't praise him for what he's promised, I praise him for who he is. Because what he has promised and who he is are so threaded together that I cannot praise God for who he is without praising God for what he has promised. And so I want to uh, give you a moment um, as we uh, kind of finish up here, give you a moment to uh, type any questions that you may have. Um, I probably need to do a better job as as I go through to prompt you to ask questions as we go through rather than waiting to the very end. Uh, in fact, I intended to do that tonight, but I got so distracted um, that I forgot all about it. It's par for the course. Um, but this issue of living out faith um, is the daily bread, the daily bread of the believer. And I oftentimes have found myself wondering um, if I had the kind of faith to move God as though um, God needed to be prompted by my faith. And that uh, that's dangerously, dangerously close to the superstitious view of the promise of God, where God is withholding from us because we didn't get, you know, some specific tone of voice or uh, that that's the wrong way to approach a God so loving and kind. Um, and so I want to I want to, uh, in my own life, I want to praise him for who he is. I want to see him do great things uh, in my life and in your life. And then I want to hear the testimony of what God is doing. Uh, thank you for the question, Brother Rick. Um, how did, ooh, that's interesting. I'm, you might have opened up a can of worms here. <laughs> 
how did Job endure his testing and not have the Holy Ghost? Well, I, I have a I have a simple uh, answer for you. Um, you don't have to have the Holy Ghost to have faith. Um, the Holy Ghost is uh, uh, how, how does the Bible say it? A comforter. The Holy Ghost is a helper. The Holy Ghost is uh, the one who comes alongside and assists. But all these died in faith, not having received the promise. And so as interesting as that might be to think about, um, Abraham did not have the Holy Ghost, but he believed God. Isaac did not have the Holy Ghost, but he believed God. Jacob did not have the Holy Ghost, but he believed God. Job did not have the Holy Ghost, but he believed God. How much more? Sometimes I wonder if we're spoiled by the experience of the Holy Ghost so much that we all the time feel like if we don't have, you know, a fallout uh, experience, then God's not keeping his promise. All these died in faith, not having <laughs> received. Um, we don't want to be so dependent upon um, experience that our faith depends upon experience. I, I know some Christians who um, I've, I had some, I've had people tell me that if they don't have a move of God on Sunday, they can't live right on Monday. Uh, I, I, I guess I, I understand what they're saying, but I, I disagree with it. Uh, that's a transactional relationship with God. If you bless me enough, then I'll live right. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Uh, if you, if you, uh, I don't know, give me enough chill bumps, then I'll live right. Uh, that that's not that's I think that's missing the boat here. Um, but that is that's a fascinating question. How did these individuals, without all the blessings we have, how did they live in faith? Um, I think it might be that the temptations of sin are more complex and subtle than we think. Yes, those generations had certain sets of uh, threats against them. Um, but I think some of those people might struggle with some of the temptations we have today. Um, because oftentimes, um, the same person who can be brave, uh, give you an example. I read a, a study on the nature of a hero and they talked about people who run in a burning building and drag a child to safety and we view them rightly as heroes in that moment they risked everything to save a child and we know them as heroes um, so it is with uh, military stories where people won the medal of honor where they saved their comrades what is the nature of a hero but here's the thing that you discover all of those heroes had many many flaws the same guy who ran in the burning building and pulled children to safety had a drinking problem. It's just, what do you do with that? Because once he saved the child, he was a hero, do you see? The same soldier who won the, the Medal of Honor um, has some problem at home. Uh, they are not uniformly heroic, but in that moment, uh, they were heroic. Um, I think the various kinds of temptations that come, I, I think the temptations of our generation um, is, is very much different than the temptations of the persecuted generations. For us, temptation is, um, it's like a trial of prosperity. And the same person who might survive a trial of assault might struggle with the trial of prosperity. There's been more than a hand to, to, to finish this thought up. This all was started because of this brother Rick's questions about Job believing and not having the Holy Ghost. So don't even get mad at me. Blame brother Rick. That's the plan. <laughs> a lot of times a pastor in a, in the missions work 
can grow up in a certain society and just be a dynamo in that society, start church after church, walk from village to village. But you take that same individual, and this is not my opinion, this is uh, missionaries' testimonies. You take that same person and then you bring them to America and they don't know what to do with America. Uh, they were dynamic in their context. But if you get them in America, it's like they lose their way. They, they don't, they don't, this is not what they know. This is not where they fit. And sometimes they can lose their way uh, spiritually. So it is uh, that uh, the temptations of our time are unique to our time. And each day is sufficient to the trouble thereof. All right, Pastor Anthony, sometimes we grab a promise and then feel like God didn't keep that promise because that promise we were holding didn't seem to happen. How do we accurately identify the promise we need for the circumstances we are in. So the problem is not the promise from my perspective. The problem is the interpretation of the promise. Uh, the same thing is true in rightly dividing the word of God. Very few people fight over what the Bible says. We fight over what the Bible means. Do you see? That's a big deal. Because if you don't make that distinction, you'll find yourself sucked into all kinds of theological disagreements over this and that, and it doesn't help anybody anytime. We're not disagreeing over what the Bible says. We're disagreeing over what the Bible means. And that's why we should not hurt one another. That's why we should not have uh, a sword in our hand to attack a brother, because that's the disagreement. So it is with promise and the interpretation of the promise. When God says he will keep you, and then you disagree <laughs> on how he kept you, well, you have not proven that God will not keep you. Does that make sense? You have had a trouble understanding. You didn't want to go through that trial. You didn't want to go through that. So the answer from my perspective on all of these issues is a heart of submission unto the Lord. A heart of submission. I don't know best. You know best. Let's be honest. I don't want to go through this, Lord. But if you take me through it, your way will be better than my way. And you will know better than me. That is real spiritual surrender. No matter what comes. I thought I'd, you know, it's imagine Abraham. When I was in my 50s, I was frustrated, but I thought it was time. God didn't think it was time. Then we were in our 60s. We thought it was time. God didn't think it was time. Then we were in our 70s. We were in our 80s. It got to the point where when we brought the subject up against, my wife could not help but laugh in the face of God. This is an example of them having a real problem with how God chose to do what God said he would do. It's not the promise. It's the interpretation of the promise. So I think all of us should lower all of us should hold the interpretation of promise lightly in our hands and allow God's will to be brought to fruition, not simply demand that it's our way, our way or the highway. All right. How are we doing on time? All right. One more question. Taylor, thank you for the question. How do you encourage and reassure others that although God didn't heal someone on their sickbed, to continue life on this earth, that God still kept his promise of healing by giving the ultimate healing, calling them home to heaven, especially to those who are unbelieving, doubting friends and family that heard you speaking faith of God's healing power. That is a great question, Taylor. Um, so I want to say a couple things about that. The first thing that I want you to um, be aware of is I want you to realize that people have to choose faith in God. They have to choose it. They cannot be talked into it by us. Um, and when we find ourselves arguing and debating with them and they don't want to believe or they are having trouble believing, oftentimes the best solution is for us to quietly and steadfastly hold to our faith in the promises of God and give them time um, I have never been able to give anybody faith in God. And one of the greatest tests is whether or not you can believe God when all the evidence in your life seems to suggest that he's not working on your behalf. And if a person cannot do that, us church people cannot do it for them. And so what we do is we believe and we pray and we trust that the same God 
who brought them to this moment will continue working with them. And so I, in that situation, would respond in this way. I would remind everybody present that the life we live is an introduction to eternal life. And the life we live in the mortal is simply a beginning, an entryway into eternal life with God. That is why all of the Christians in the Bible cannot hold their lives too dearly. If you'll notice, they don't hold their lives too dearly. They are ready to spend their lives for truth. They are ready to spend their lives for the power and the promise of God to be fulfilled through them. We cannot be people of faith and hold too dearly to this life. I know that's easy to say when you're not sick. Um, I, I think many of us in, the, in this room have been sick. And many of us in this room have faced uh, serious, serious things. And we had to ask ourselves, can we say that? And I think many of us, if we're still in this room after all these years, we could sit here facing the bad report from the doctor. And we could say the life I have lived is just an introduction to a better life. And I can't get so hung up on this life that I fail to see there's a better life waiting for me. As Christians, we can't be quite as intimidated by death as non-Christians. We can't be quite as mournful at the passing of a saint as unbelievers. Because if we have the same fear as them, then we have the same testimony as them, which is to say, not much, not much of a testimony. So I would try to remind them that the place, the position of the believer is not focused on this life, but is focused on the next life, while acknowledging that although all of us are going to die, God will give healing as a sign of his presence, not because we're going to live to forever in this body, because we're not. That's not the point of healing. The point of healing is to testify of the presence of God and to demonstrate God's power in the here and now. It's not so anybody will live forever in this body. It's the next body. And so uh, I know that isn't um, a simple formulaic uh, one, two, three answer. But uh, to summarize, I would remind you that the people you are ministering to, they have to choose for themselves. And not everyone can choose in the face of death. They do not have what it takes. However, you holding to faith will continue to be a testimony to them. So don't be so invested in arguing over it that you lose your testimony of simple trust in eternal life through Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're always testifying that the best life is not this one. It's the next one. And we're always celebrating the next life, the next uh, the next season, the next moment of spiritual uh, union, union with God. Uh, and finally, we do look for healing. But that healing is not a solution for anybody to live forever. That's going to happen on the other side of Jordan. That's going to happen after death. Healing is simply the testimony of God. Think of all the people Jesus healed in the Gospels. He healed a lot of people, right? Are any of them still alive? No, everybody Jesus healed died. Lazarus died. Death is not the end. It's just the end of the beginning. Everything that's good is happening next. So, all right. Man, we've covered some ground here tonight. Um, thank you for the questions. I enjoyed them very, very much. Uh, it's my favorite part. Uh, I, love, I love being on the horns of a dilemma. And so... <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, let's just take a moment here and reflect um, and uh, consider how um, this scripture that we've referred to, this teaching, applies into our life. We're talking about claiming the promises of God. We're talking about knowing them. We're talking about personalizing them. We're talking about speaking them. And we're talking about celebrating them. We know them. We personalize them. We speak them. We celebrate them, but it's none of it a manipulation of God. Instead, it's all a worship of who he is, 
what he has promised and what he has done. So right where you are, just bow your head. If you're with your family, you can pray with them right now. We're just going to take a moment here of spiritual reflection and can apply this to our life. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If this podcast has blessed you, please rate it with four or five stars. By doing so, you will help others find our free podcast and bless them. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come worship with us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road. For information about service times, church ministries, and so much more, visit us online at firstchurchclt.com. If you would like to help support our efforts, please text GIVE to 704-445-5353. We pray God's richest blessings to you. Come, worship with us.